If you listen to enough of this podcast, you might be concerned that we're approaching a major collapse of governments, financial markets, or even the Western developed world in its entirety. So when the revolution comes, do you want to be out of shape and unable to defend yourself? Or do you want to be fighting fit? Why not try Fight Camp? Fight Camp is interactive at-home boxing. They bring the best workout in the world into your home and make it fun. Explore thousands of workouts led by expert trainers with decades of experience teaching proper boxing form and technique. Fight Camp has live punch counting stats that motivate you by counting every punch throughout your workout and pushing you to meet goals every single round. As you progress, you'll unlock achievements and can go head-to-head against other members, whether they're across the country or across your living room. One of the best things about Fight Camp is that it makes boxing accessible to everyone, no matter what fitness level you're at, what your age is, or what your experience with boxing is, you can do it. And you're going to have a great time as well. So join the biggest boxing community in the world without ever leaving your home. Fight Camp packages start at just $99. They either offer some great financing options, so you can get started for just $9 a month. To get everything you need, go to fightcamp.com forward slash chatter to learn more. That's fightcamp.com forward slash chatter. C-H-A-T-T-E-R. Wonderful. Okay, so um, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm joined by Stephanie Savell, the co-director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. Uh, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let me just put my phone on silent here. Yeah, always Sorry good to, that. I might actually have to check that I have done that at some point, um, although I don't know where my phone is. <laughs> but yeah, I as, as I mentioned before before we started recording there, the reason that I, I thought it was a good time to have you, you on was because, yeah, we're in a bit of a scary time. Um, nuclear war is being openly discussed. Um, there's a lot of talk about we're on the brink of, of World War Three, and obviously... Um, Ukraine is is not in a good way. There's a escalating levels of of fighting and and bombing going on there, and yeah, yeah I just I, I thought it would be useful to get a perspective on on what what war does, and and try not to get caught up in the the minute details of of what's going on right now, and just just think about like the greater cost of of the things. Bigger picture, yeah. My my colleague Nita Crawford, um, she was one of the founders of the Cost of War Project which I co-direct now, but she, uh, she founded it back in 2011. And she always says, you know, people, when, when, when politicians are getting into wars, they say uh, they make arguments about them being cheap and quick and efficient at meeting their goals. And that's never the case. It's impossible for a war to be cheap, quick or efficient. <laughs> Just not going to happen. Yeah. And then, I was listening to one of your the the recent Cost of War podcasts in which they they kind of explored like all of these like second effects or secondary effects where you know it's the the impact on on veterans mental health upon mm-hmm. um like the the massive bloated military budget leads to like a militarization of the police forces with which ex, uh, escalates police violence and yeah. it's just these are all these things that you don't think about in in the in the time when when everyone's sort of gunning for it that's right. And that's what the Cost of War Project is all about, is just taking a step back to look at the bigger view and the bigger picture and say, what are the costs that are unacknowledged, that are deeper? And really the point of of our putting the research out there is to just promote a more consistent, critical questioning of war and militarism and just promote a, a, a more informed ability 
on a broader scale to just ask the big picture questions like, should we be going to war at all? And what really protects people both in the US and around the world? Uh, what, what actually does safety mean? What's the best way of accomplishing that? Um, so that's what we really hope our research can do. So, so I'd like to start by by diving into yeah some of the sort of like more headline findings um, that are, that are listed on on the website. So, and sort of how you go about calculating it. So, just so people have an idea, actually, let me pull it up on screen here for people who are watching. That would be really good. Um, so we have. Um, 929,000 people have died in post 9-11 wars due to direct war violence and several times as many due to rever uh, the reverberating effects. Um, 387,000 civilians have been killed as a result of the fighting. Uh, 38 million people have been displaced and the federal price tag uh, for the US government is over $8 trillion. Um, so, right. so these are the post 9-11 wars we're talking about. So everything yeah. that began with... Uh, President George W. Bush's invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 in the name of the global war on terror and all of the the actions that that, you know, what was called the global war on terror at the time has has led to. So I guess uh, the first my first question is, like, how, how do you even go about calculating these these kinds of figures like that? It's. Uh, like, I, I'm not saying I don't believe you. <laughs> Just um, I'm curious about about how. Like, uh, like, do you have to go to individual countries to get the data from them? Um, is it like on on the ground reporting? Like, how, how do you go about figuring this all out? Yeah, it really varies depending on which figure you're talking about. Um, and uh, this colleague, Dr. Crawford, who I mentioned. Um, who actually has a new position now um, at the University of Oxford. So she's in the UK. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Uh, she, so she's really, I mean, she's been kind of pioneering and coming up with these big, big estimates. Um, and uh, what she talks about is coming up with a reasonable and conservative estimate. Um, so she never makes a claim that hers is a definitive number. In fact, when it comes to calculating a death toll from a conflict, um, it's kind of notoriously impossible to come up with a very accurate count. Um, there's so many political decisions about who gets counted and why, especially when it comes to who got killed by who, um, and uh, and even um, you know the 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 kind of um, birth and death records in a lot of the countries that you're we're focusing on, like Afghanistan, are really poor or non-existent. Um, so so you're you're really talking about. Um, and then you 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 kind of get into the the kind of what I mean by political decision making is, um, you know the the people on the ground might say that a certain number of people in their village were killed by a U.S. airstrike, for example, and then the U.S. will say, oh well, no, that you know those are only you know t fighters; those are Al Qaeda, so therefore they don't count really as deaths, you know, and if you know because civilians are the ones that governments are really held accountable for. Um, I'm of course pr very critical of that logic, if you can't tell by my tone. But um, uh, uh, the um, and then and then you know, so so then it gets very contested, and the U.S. will will go in and and kind of set do a kind of aerial use aerial surveillance technology to say, oh well, there's this number of graves from this recent strike, and so that therefore you know, and then the people on the ground are saying, 
but you know, you're you're reconfirming your own biases of your drone operators to begin with that you are only count, counting these people, right? So, so there are these kinds of debates that go into even um, something that sounds on the surface simple, like a death toll. Um, and uh, and so basically what you have to do is kind of triangulate a whole bunch of different sources. Um, and so we use a lot of sources from the UN, um, which themselves are, are you know, open uh, up to critique, right? So there's yes. that, there's um, government statistics, there's a lot of, um, we, we draw on a lot of um, independent investigative journalism projects like the Iraq body count um, and uh, independent journalists as well. Um, nonprofit groups, there's a group called um, Moantana for Human Rights in um, Yemen that does a really great job with documenting deaths from U.S. airstrikes, among other things. So um, you kind of just like put the pieces together. Um, that is what I'll say about the human. Oh, and and one more thing to say um, at this point about the human toll is that that what sounds like an aside, um, the kind of you know several times as many more due to the reverberating effects of war. You said 929,000 people killed directly, and that's through the direct weapons of war, through combat and um, bombs and bullets. And uh, it, the ripple effects of war are in fact far more deadly. And you, I just can't emphasize that enough. I'm, I'm actually writing a paper about this right now. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just so devastating once you start getting into the details, I'm a mom, I have an eight year old and a four year old. And what I realized in reading some of this stuff that's written about the reverberating effects in Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and Syria and Somalia, some of these other hot spots of the US post 9-11 wars and counterterrorism is that it's children. I mean, it's, it's really what we're talking about is is children, like 50% of children in Afghanistan right now are wasting or projected to be wasting, um, which means literally, you know, wasting away to the skin and bone, like, and, and, and children die of both that extreme malnutrition, and then also of the fact that, you know, when you're malnourished, it's far easier to contract a disease like acute diarrhea, or cholera, and then die of that because your your body is much more susceptible to illness. So, um, so I yeah, I just can't um, emphasize enough that when you're that that's what the, what that, that that's what this suffering that's what we're talking about is a lot of a lot of death um, from things like malnutrition and disease as a consequence of hospital systems or health systems being decimated by war and. Um, you know, the food systems being uh, disrupted, medicine supply chains being disrupted, healthcare workers having to flee, um, hospitals being attacked. I mean, all of these things are happening in war, and these are all leading to a huge amount of death and suffering, disease and injury. Um, so just to switch gears for a second uh, to the the numbers of uh, the budgetary to the budgetary cost of war I'll tell you what um, actually can, can yeah. we come back to the budget because i do want to yeah. talk about that and then sort of more broadly yeah. about about like the 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 cost of the military generally and whether like you know we need it or, or that sort of thing but but like i want to there's like two things i want to ask about here is um first uh, the the 
the sort of like, yeah, what you think is, since you said you're writing a paper on it, actually, we'll start with this, the... The, that these second order effects that sort of ripple out and and cause like pro, quite probably like multi generational um, damage. Like, yeah. what do you think is the most like the most impactful part of that, or the like the most damaging? Like, is it? Do you think it's like the the like the psychological effects on like both individuals and like the wider society, or do you think it's like the physical? damage to the country and like the infrastructure and infrastructure the, the land yeah and the, like w- what do you think is is more damaging i mean you're absolutely right in talking about it as as multi-generational uh because a malnourished kid for example at key moments in their development they develop um developmental disorders and so then then their growth is stunted their um they just don't, don't even have the same kind of brain power even if they do grow into adults um as if they had had proper food when they were a child um so there's that um it's 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 yes both i mean the the mental trauma is undeniable and it's so understudied. We just don't know enough. One story I like to share is a story by one of our contributors who's an Afghan um, scholar of Afghanistan. Her name is Anila Dilatsai. And she talks about, um, war. she writes about war widows in Afghanistan and she writes about um, the use of heroin and the fact that um, there are these, or there were during the US led war, um, like programs to help widows who uh, had lost their husbands in the violence and their, a lot of times male children, brothers, fathers. Um, And they, but you have to kind of show that you're a, you're deserving of this aid by being a good worker and not being, you know, not having any addiction to heroin. It's kind of a, it's a way that people have turned to, to cope with the kind of, extent of this grief um, and trauma. And she writes about how there's this, this w- the woman she tells the story of who, who kind of defiantly chooses to use heroin and not get the aid from the aid program. And she's saying, you know, this is the way that this woman is choosing to live. It's her way of choosing life and not death. It's the only way that she can live given the circumstances, given that she lost her husband and her sons. Um, and, uh, and, and just, if you think about the ramifications of the choice for, for life being an addiction to heroin and what that means and what kind of a life that woman lives, you start to begin to grasp, I think the magnitude of the suffering, right? Um, is it cause she didn't want to take help from people who were like enabling the violence that had led her to that situation? It, it was more like she just was, it was kind of a big, like, you know, forget you, like, like, don't tell me how I can, I should cope or how I should deal with my grief, you know, like, this is all the only way I can manage. And, you know, um, so, yeah, and, and um, this same scholar, Dr. Dilatsai talks about, um, you know, people saying to her, I can't taste my food anymore. In, you know, in Afghanistan, I, I, I don't want to live another day, you know, like this, these kinds of statements are really common. Um, and you think about the effects on um, 
that we've had papers also on even just on U.S. service members yeah. um, and vets who have gone through these wars and how four times as many have died by suicide than actually in combat, right? Over 30,000 U.S. service members and vets of the post 9-11 wars have died by suicide. Um, so the mental trauma is just, just you know, you can't, you, it's it's hard to fully grasp, but it's also, you can't underestimate it, right? Um, and then there's the infrastructure and the fact that war plunges entire countries into poverty. Um, there, you know, it's the, the whole economy gets decimated. People can no longer secure um, basic livelihood. And, and that is the biggest, I mean, killer, right? Because if you can't afford to buy food, you can't eat. And that has huge consequences for your life and your, you know, death. Um, and same, like you can't afford to take your kid to the doctor if they get sick, you know, just these very, very basic things that in, you know, in a lot of us of more privilege in Western countries kind of just take for granted. Yeah, I was, I was, I was just thinking about like how. Obviously, they're having to suffer the 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 physical damage, and you know the the suffer living through a war zone. But like the 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 human psychological effects are mirrored in in both countries. Like there's no winner here from from it. It's it like it. And as as well, you mentioned in heroin, it's just like it chimes so like tragically with the the opioid crisis as well that that sort of like embroils so many veterans in 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 the U.S. Like it's yeah. it's it's really tragic. And and like to to that end, like and to the three hundred eighty seven thousand civilians killed as a direct result of the fighting. Who okayed this? Like. Like no, but like seriously, right? Okay, so 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 we have the UN, and we have like this, you know, global peace, um, uh, where there's lots of like little skirmish wars going on, right? And like, who is decide? Who gets to sort of like decide that our war is just enough to, and and righteous enough to to justify the deaths of like innocent people like in in the court of like international affairs like who is it that's meant to sort of say actually hang on like you're killing too many civilians there like is it the UN or is there right. is there someone yeah i mean there there are international conventions and norms governing war um and you know the geneva conventions is one there are theories of just war. Um, I, I personally am not a scholar of the kind of the, the laws and governing structures around this. I mean, some people say that really, you know, if you're talking about whether an, a particular action in war is just or unjust, it's kind of missing the point. I mean, it, it, it obviously it needs to happen there need to be people who are experts in that there needs to be expertise around that. But, but fundamentally, like, isn't it, can't we just talk about it being like wrong to, to kill um, and wrong, you know, just, just like any war at all is not, not a good way of solving problems. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like a great, a great way to, to sort of throw human life at a problem. Um, but unfortunately that's what we've been doing for, many thousands of years 
Yeah, um, although as I'm an anthropologist, so I have to interject there and say that, you know, one of the things I think a lot of us t- just assume is that, you know, war is just inevitable and it's a part of human nature. And the, actually there's lots of um, cross-cultural and historical research, lots of societies that use other means of conflict resolution. Okay. Could you give us a cool example? Oh, no, I can't give you an example off the top of my head. Unfortunately, I should, should learn one of those. <laughs> That's all right. Um, well, I mean, there was, there was plenty of cultures with whom were not as violent and who were more violent. Um, I mean, the Greeks like to, to talk their problems out until, well, until they didn't. Um, or, you know, <laughs> there's, yeah, but the, yeah, there's definitely examples of, of neutral and non-violent countries becoming very uh, prosperous and successful. The Swiss, um, for example. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the then to go sort of back to to your question about the price tag. Mm. Um, so yeah, the the estimated cost of of wars post nine eleven is is eight trillion dollars. It's such an unfathomably huge, like stupid sum of money. So like, where on earth did that all go? Is that just like guns and bullets, or like where did that go? Right. So. This is um, a calculation that, again, it has this kind of cost of war project ethos of kind of taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. So there's the money that um, the U.S. has spent in what it calls overseas contingency operations, um, which is the it's kind of like the war slush fund in the United States um, over and above the regular Pentagon budget that has gone to fund the post 9-11 wars. Um, and the these this overseas contingency contingency operations funding has been about two billion, including for Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. So two billion of the eight is the actual money that that has been in this war fund. Um, but then there's like you, you can't talk about war spending, we argue, without talking about care for veterans of the wars, right? So this money is obligated by the United States government to veterans of the military throughout the course of their lifetimes. And so if you're going to talk about the cost of war, you have to think about obligations to care for vets. Um, And that is another 2 billion of the eight is like a a kind of, we put in a reasonable, and again, this is, uh, this is Dr. Crawford's research, a reasonable estimate of a veteran's lifetime and how much the estimate would be to pay for this. Actually, sorry, that that particular calculation is by um, a scholar at Harvard named um, Dr. Linda Bilma. It's just she kind of there's piece there's pieces of each of these line items that have kind of been calculated by different people. There's also Homeland Security, um, which is the U.S. You, you can almost think of it as the if the the counterterrorism has been targeted outside U.S. borders, Homeland Security is kind of inside U.S. borders and the kind of prevention of terrorism. Um, there, uh, most of which in the United States, by the way, is white, today is like white extremist kind of, you know, more like right-wing type uh, terrorism than far more than, than any kind of, you know, foreign Islamist militant attacks on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then there's um, the fact that this a lot the U.S. has uh, borrowed a lot of this money to pay for war 
a lot of that overseas contingency operations funding. So um, these are credit card wars. They they have the U.S. Um, budget, federal budget, went into the red after 9-11. It was not in the red before 9-11, and it has never gone back. It's just been like an increasing red line down. I mean, you know, uh, but but increasing deficit spending as a result of the wars. Um, so there's interest that we've that we have paid and that we will owe trillions more. So we've spent one billion so far in interest alone. There's going to be trillions more, even if you know, even if the 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 funding just completely, the spending completely stopped. Um, and the last line item is increases to the um, Department of Defense base budget due to war. So these are the things over and above um, war spending that are like, you know, equipment upgrades and um, bonuses, like retention bonuses to convince people to go back to the war zones again and again. I mean, the, the really what we're talking about, you're asking where it goes, like the vast, I mean, over 50% of the money that's that's in the Pentagon's budget goes to military contractors. So these are the you know companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and um, and Northrop Grumman that are Raytheon. Don't forget Raytheon. Raytheon, <laughs> yes, they're building weapons. They are supplying things in the war zones, maintaining bases abroad, those kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, it's still it's such a it's such an unfathomably like huge figure to it try is. and get your head around, and like, like what, what argument do people use to like? Well, obviously we know what argument people use to justify. So like, like do we do we need all of this to be safe? <laughs> like, like is there like do like do you like do the cost of war conceive of like a, a military budget that's reasonable? Like, do you have a figure in mind? There are people who do that, you know, they, there's, there's a movement even that's kind of gotten some traction, even within us Congress to cut the Pentagon budget by 10%, 10%. I'm always disappointed. And I mean, I, I understand there needs to be kind of reasonable policy goals. Um, and, and it's great. People are advocating for that and working on that. It's really important, but like, you know, it should, in my mind, the, the Pentagon budget, the U S spends more than the next nine countries combined on quote unquote defense. Um, and so in my mind, what's really needed. Oh, oh. And I should say, a lot of the the 10% cuts it's it's actually like would be super easy to do because there's so much waste fraud and abuse so if the you know if there's so much kind of fat to skim off the top and get to that very easily so there are groups who kind of have these very re realistic alternatives the, um, there's a and there's a this um moral budget for america this great group called uh, the poor people's campaign has come up with this alternative moral budget for America in which they take a whole bunch of the money that goes to the Pentagon and put it towards like social safety net type programs. Um, so that would be interesting for you to check out. But, um, but, but to get back to this other picture, I mean, so over a million Americans have died of COVID. <laughs> um, we have so like so many people, I think I forget the exact figure, but like, tens of thousands of people who die every year because of our car dependent transportation system. We have this like, you know, climate 
emergencies more and more, um, especially the fires out west and the flooding that we've seen with the hurricanes in different parts of the country. And so, you know, like really, you to to answer your question, it's like we need to take take a step back and think about what is like what actually is gonna like are we talking about when we talk about safety? Like how many people? Um, are we, who, who's dying of what? And how do we actually protect people? The, like a million people who died of COVID, like the US should have far better public health systems in place. And, and all of that, I mean, if you think about, so every year the federal budget gets negotiated, the discretionary budget gets negotiated in Congress. Mm-hmm. And um, every year, up there, if you think about like a pie chart, a bigger and bigger piece of the pie is going towards security so security and military and defense. And then a shrinking part of the pie is everything else from you know education to housing to healthcare to everything. So every dollar that gets spent on those things like doesn't get spent on these really urgent other priorities like a functioning public health system that would keep people from dying of COVID. Mm. Yeah, well, tying a lot of things. Go bankrupt as well. I'm working on, <laughs> yeah, I've been working on a thing uh, um, for another project about about like the, the the cost of healthcare in America, and it's truly mind blowing um, how much people fork out or are forced to fork out for like the most basic necessities. And like, yeah. I never get this about your country. Like, isn't a healthy population like a boon economically? Isn't that good for the market? Like, I just don't get it. Right. I mean, not that we're doing much. Well, we're slowly attempting to dismantle our wonderful healthcare system. So, yeah. So, right. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that I would I came across while I was um, looking at some of your work was this um, bit of work you'd done on counterterrorism uh, operations um, under the authorization uh, authorization for use of military force sort of rule, and I was just like blown away at a the number of countries. Let me get pull this map up for people to see. Actually, um, yeah. you know it, so I don't need to sc- share my screen. I think, but yeah, um, for people who uh, who are watching, like it's it's like most of Africa, <laughs> um, like quite a number of countries in like uh, Eastern Europe through Turkey, the Middle East, like the entire Middle East, basically. Um, then uh, through like Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, all of uh, all the way down through Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, like then through Southeast Asia. It's just like absolutely mind blowing. 85, 85 countries yeah, um, where the US is, is doing some sort of counterterrorism operation. Yeah. But like the yeah. thing that, that shocked me is like that, that this is all being done under the the law that was signed in in 2001 after after um 9-11 to uh like as a like a counter then as like oh you can like you know the president has the authority i think well actually would you like to explain it because you will do a better yes, job than yes me. <laughs> yes yes absolutely because there is um a slight uh yeah a, a slight clarification i have to make so 85 countries this map that you're talking about um is 
so I had a team of people and we kind of went in and we basically combed not only government, U.S. government information and data sources, but also like all the investigative journalism that we could get our hands on to come up with this map of 85 countries in the world. And the last time we did it was between um, 2018 to 2020. So the last few years of the Trump administration, although under Biden, it's, it's a very similar picture, um, despite the US military talking about, you know, the threat from Russia and China being the, the kind of latest justification for US militarism, th these kinds of counterterrorism operations are persisting th throughout the world. Um, and they're just kind of changing shape and changing, you know, the, the ways that they're called, but they're still happening. So, uh, so basically, um, some of these things are more, uh, more overt, like, um, you know, airstrikes and combat, there's on the ground kind of exchange of gunfire between US forces in Kenya, for example, and, and Al-Shabaab militant, right? So those kinds of things are on the map. Um, the large majority on the map is um, training and assistance. So this is, in, this is happening in 79 places that we captured, where the US, US is going into another country and saying, can we train and assist you in in counterterrorism. Um, and as you can imagine, this isn't the sort of thing that the US does in Western Europe. Um, no, the conspicuously the sort of, absent on that map. Exactly. <laughs> so the US is doing this in, in places that are home to black and brown people. Um, this, you know, a lot of people have written about the war on terror as a, as you know, really being there's just a, a lot of racism and Islamophobia behind who gets labeled a terrorist and why and who gets helped <laughs> in counterterrorism, right? Um, so the so there's that, and this kind of help is not the it's not as innocuous as it sounds. Um, and I because of this map, I ended up going to Burkina Faso and doing a deep dive into one of these data points on the map. Like what does training in this US training and assistance in counterterrorism look like in Burkina Faso in West Africa? Mm -hmm. And just showed how the government uses this massive amount of funding, which for the US is just like a penny. It's just so the, the funding for a country like that is really small in the bigger picture of what the US is um, spending on security, what it calls security cooperation. Uh, but it has huge effects on the ground, the way that the, the these governments are using it to crack down a particular ethnic group that has practiced um, Islam for centuries and is a hurting group at the periphery of the state and the ways that the government is using this money and the equipment and the training to kind of further this marginalization of this particular ethnic group in the name of counterterrorism. So this is something that's happening, not just in Burkina Faso, but in other places as well. Um, to go back to this issue of the authorization for the use of military force, this was a resolution that was passed by Congress just days after the 9-11 attacks in the US. Um, and it basically gives the President of the United States a kind of blanket authorization to carry out counterterrorism, uh, you know, in any part of the world, wherever there are terrorist groups. Um, so the AUMF itself, um, there's, a, there's a requirement under something called the War Powers Resolution that, um, that the President reports on places where where it's using the AUMF, this authorization, 
to Congress. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit more of a record of where the AUMF has been used, and it's not a complete record. So my research on that particular thing showed that um, the AUMF has been referenced by the president to justify counterterrorism in actually 22 countries. Um, but but that's, that that's actual, even, like, on-the-ground troops, you mean, when you say that's that? That's actual. Well, in some cases, it's airstrikes okay. as well. In some cases, it's training. It's kind of like a mish, you know, a mishmash, but it's definitely not comprehensive. So okay. even in cases where they're use, he's, the president has used this justification, it's, it's not been totally transparent or comprehensive. The, the crazy, like, I've never, like, I've, I've, I've talked to quite a lot of people, a lot of whom are very sceptical of the power of the American government. And none of them have ever, and a lot of people who are anti-war um, and anti-interventionist, none of them have ever mentioned the fact that, like, this, um, like, authorization is, is still, like, there from 2001. Like, no one has ever mentioned that. Like why is oh, this not like why is this not discussed like openly? Yeah, it so there is, you know, there's some really incredible advocates um in the, you know, DC peace and anti-militarism space who are really working hard on the repeal of the 2001 AUMF. And there's actually another AUMF, the 2002 AUMF which was used primarily for Iraq. Uh Iraq. I'm sorry. I've just learned that I've been I'm mispronouncing. It's Iraq, and um, and Syria got extended to Syria to the, for the fight against the Islamic State. Um, and then um, and then so so that so basically people are trying to get repeal the 2002 AUMF because there's so many kind of um, you know entrenched status quo kind of effects in trying to keep the 2001 AUMF in place in Congress that, that people the thinking is if you can get the 2002 repealed, then you then get to the 2001. But yes, you're right. I mean, it's not talked about enough. Um, it should be talked about way more. And it's what, when I give talks and things, I tell people, you know, there are amazing groups, like there's the Quaker group, um, the Friends Committee for National Legislation, FCNL in the United States, who does a lot of work on this topic. And you can sign up for their email uh, updates in your in your inbox and they'll give you like a form and you can just very easily you know fill out the form and send a letter to your member of congress because they're tracking these particular pieces of legislation and efforts to like repeal the, the AUMF it's not something any of us can be expected to keep at top of mind but when these things come up for debate in congress it's so important for people to kind of be writing to their members of congress in support of the repeal and that kind of thing so that Certainly, people need to know a lot more. Yeah, because like the, I, I've been just trying to Google to think of what it is, like to try and think of the name of it, but I cannot right now. But there was a document like circulated like within the U.S. government that that then got I don't know subsequently leaked or something. But it's I've I've heard quite a lot of people talk about it. Like post nine eleven, it was like a like a memo about how they could use this to justify the invasion. I think it was seven different countries. And that is widely spoken about. This is why I'm like shocked that I haven't heard about this um, authorization like still being in use because I feel like it should be mentioned in like the same category because it seems like right. They yeah. Do Do you know the thing I'm talking about, or do I need to go I, away and I, find this? I mean, I, it sounds familiar, but I can't speak to it. Um, but what I can say is that what the U.S. what the U.S. State Department has done is basically add a growing list of 
militant groups to the U.S. official list of terrorist groups. And so the fact that that this justification is for any, you know, they, they've basically been able to extend it by extending the amount of groups that are labeled as terrorists. Like who has the power to put people on that list? Is it like just- It's a State uh, Department. Yeah, State it's a State Department, Department list. They just, oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They, you know, they, you'd think they'd just never run out of people to put on that list, wouldn't you? You would, th- <laughs> you would think that. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what yeah people will do once they're given. That's the problem as well. Like that, it's it's not this. It's the it's the problem with like reforming anything within like a country that's that, that's so huge and has existed for for anything beyond like thirty four years. Is like things get like monstrously entrenched. So like, yeah. and I know you've done like a little t- a bit of thinking about it. It's like how how do you, how would you go about trying to like dismantle this like war based economy? Like, like where where do you begin to like? Do, do you have to convince enough politicians that like we shouldn't be spending on that? Or like like where how do you think we go about doing this? Yeah, I mean that's that is the big question. Um, you know, I think there's people in the U.S who are really actively talking right now about like, how do we begin to dismantle the military industrial complex? And just to give you a sense of the, um, like what we're talking about, it, I think that's really important. So, so um, after the Cold War, um, the US military budget started contracting and a big portion of the budget for mili- these military contracting companies started being cut. And so they started um, kind of with this really proactive agenda, both in terms of convincing the, the U.S. government that we that they needed to be kind of um, more on top of prevention and preventing threats before they arose, and and also um, like jobs. So this is the thing that the military contracting companies have set up, you know, manufacturing in so many states and congressional districts. And so they've basically tied the issue of job creation to the issue of funding, spending on the military. Um, So there's this really widespread, commonplace understanding in the United States. It's just kind of, people don't question it at all. Like, oh, if you wanna have good jobs in this, you know, in this community, then funding the military, having a local, you know, manufacturing company or a base or something like that is a really great way to create jobs. And and people don't question that and everyone cares about jobs. So, um, you know, we're a research organization. Our piece of the puzzle is not in the advocacy itself, but what we can do is support the groups who are using our research to make change. And so we put out information like, um, you know, actually per dollar spent money invested in education or healthcare is going to get you far more jobs than, um, than military spending, right? And we've actually lost the opportunity to create something on the order of, you know, 2 million jobs in the United States because of this choice for war instead of other things. Um, there is also, we have a new paper coming out soon on what it takes to convert military jobs to or or military manufacturing company to like a green you know green energy type uh manufacturing so the case was of these like um 
hybrid buses that were that kind of were started being manufacturing by one of the big military contractors and what it takes to kind of switch that. So there's those kinds of things that people propose and talk about as well. Um, but then you think about the fact that there, like over the past five years, there were something along the lines of 700 lobbyists for military contracting companies um, every year annually versus 535 members of the U.S. Congress. So more lobbyists for defense contractors than members of Congress. They have an enormous amount of political influence. Um, and I think they really produce a situation in which the status quo is one of just throwing money at the Pentagon. And it becomes very radical to start to talk about anything. I mean, even a 10% cut, like what I was saying, is like this big deal, you know, and it should be much more than that. Um, so, so that's what the military industrial complex, you know, looks like. And, and I don't have any answers, certainly. Um, but what I do know is that there are, you know, there's just a really vibrant um, number of groups these days working against different aspects of U.S. militarism. One of them is this Poor People's Campaign that I mentioned that takes its inspiration from Martin Luther King, actually. Um, and he his call to work against the three intertwined um, evils of poverty, racism, and militarism was one of his big things. Um, so they're kind of taking up that call and they've used a bunch of our research. Um, and, and, you know, to the extent that we can, we're trying to tie our um, research and our concern with foreign policy to domestic movements that are working on police, the intensification of police militarization, um, and, you know, the, the kind of erosion of U.S. democracy, and a, a lot of these things that, that are really kind of intimately connected to people's everyday lives that most people don't realize is also really connected to, you know, U.S. foreign policy and, and U.S. racism and, and um, inequality and, and all of these things, they're all interconnected and they have been for, for as long as the U.S. has existed as a nation and even before. Mm. Yeah, and and probably also worth noting is that like the the people from the lower ends of the income spectrum are often the people who end up fighting in these wars. Uh, Absolutely, and Martin Luther King was pointing that out. You know, he was saying like, my black brothers are the ones who are like disproportionately dying in the Vietnam War. You know, he was a big part of the anti-Vietnam War movement, and that's certainly the case today. Um, it's it's you know the 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 story of who is in the military is, is a story of social inequality in the United States, actually. It's, it's the only jobs creation program the United States has. And if you're looking at people who are kind of trying to have a secure income and, you know, kind of lay out a, some sort of sense in which they're climbing a, a sense of job security and a social ladder, then like the military is one of the only ways um, that's available to a lot of communities. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. It does. It, I've seen people who, for whom it's 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 turned their life around, but it's sad that that's the only option that they have. Totally, that, that exactly. Not, that's exactly what I'm believed saying. in by anyone else. Um, yeah, so. or or not offered the opportunities to like. What if there were the same amount of like money for education offered, for example, even just that offered to people as an incentive for going into you know an industry like uh, green manufacturing or education or something like that you know yeah, something something useful scientists <laughs> teachers nurses and doctors right <laughs> things we need um 
it's it's like so you you talked there about the, how the cold war had kind of had, had at the end of the cold war there was this like contracting military budget and and i feel like in a sense that we were, we were sort of almost approaching like a, a period where you would expect the military budget to st- to start contracting you know like um there was like no new wars started for for quite a number of years um and then um joe biden pulled out of afghanistan however disastrously that went um you know it was still like a a positive move in like withdrawing military forces from from a conflict that had been ongoing for 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 over two decades um or about two decades um anyway so like do you cynics would say that the 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 war in ukraine is being i wouldn't say deliberately stoked but has left military contractors not unhappy about the prospect mm-hmm. of further war like do you do you see the possibility that the military budgets are just like are we going to see like another surge in like money heading towards towards this industry yeah, I mean, I think I think during all the kind of economic ups and downs that the U.S. economy has gone through in the past months and couple years, um, you know, the military contracting industry is the one industry that hasn't suffered all of those kinds of ups and downs. Like they've been on a steady, uh, steady course, you know, always increasing profits, and so um, they certainly, I think, there's a lot of money behind why um you know behind the kind of war fever that we see in a lot of the public discourse i'm i'm all for supporting ukraine what russia is doing in ukraine is just awful um it's you know it's a war of aggression many people say it's a genocide it's horrible um so we absolutely should do something um but uh you know i i I do think that there's a way that the people with a financial interest in the U.S. war economy um, are seeing this as a as a nice justification for continued profits. Mm. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I saw on the cost of war actually there was a, a thing about how that we were, they were expecting like almost price gouging on military expenditure as as inflate with using inflation as a as an excuse. Yeah, well, that's another big thing that um, is being talked about on Capitol Hill right now as an as a justification for increased military budgets is inflation. So one of our papers by my colleague Heidi Peltier, who's an economist, basically went through all the arguments and showed like actually inflation has pretty much no effect on defense spending um, for a few different reasons. And um, here's why you really can't use that as an excuse. But people are trying to kind of, you know, say that that should be why there should be more money for the Pentagon. Well, I hope the same uh, the same goes when I go looking for a pay rise. Uh, <laughs> I'll try it. Inflation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, in your case, it's it's legit. Yeah, in the case exactly. of the Pentagon, not so much. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Um, anyway, so like just to sort of like tap this, like top this off, like we've talked a lot about the the reasons that war is costly, damaging to like human lives, to countries, to nations, societies. Um, like, do 
do you think, and like this doesn't have to be the cost of war's opinion, but like, do you think there's ever like a justification for going to war? Like, or, and is there a is there like a good arguments for having like a, a, a like a strong military force? I think I'm still puzzling through that, to be honest. Like, I haven't quite. I don't know, um, because certainly, I. You know, I, I, like if you look what happened with, you know, Russia's completely aggressive invasion of Ukraine, you can't you can't possibly tell a Ukrainian like don't fight to defend mm. your country and your lives. You know, um, so what I what I will say is that there are so many other ways of like, I, I think in the U S there's this tendency to think if we're going to do something, it has to be with military force. Like if we're going to do something abroad to intervene, then that's our option. And I, and I think that there are so many other means at a country's disposal to deal with conflicts and problems. And so much that could be, not only talked about, but invested in, like, you know, just in terms of, of diplomacy and, and, you know, all kinds of other mechanisms that just don't get enough um, support and attention uh, because of the, the really overemphasis on the use of military force. Mm. What do you think that would look like? Like sanctions, like stop using their oil, basically, probably? Maybe we should be. Sanctions are... I, yeah, I don't understand why we haven't got like every factory like available, like pumping out like any like solar panels as fast as possible. Right. Just like, but like, like legit, like to to uh, obviously like the grid needs a lot of upgrading before it would be able to take like full one hundred percent renewables. But surely we should be pumping out any method of like stacking our energy resources. I don't get it. it like it does seem like a no-brainer at this point in world history. Um you would think that there would be so much more political momentum behind that. Yeah. It's just like energy independence. Be like create if we did. Right. Like we could cut we could cut we could just be like okay, you want to cut the oil off? We are sorted. Like you know I yep. I don't get it. You know cuz like between between like some extra renewable capacity and like whatever America has at home or whatever, you know, Britain, we've got plenty of natural gas. It's like, if we like just expanded our like capacity a bit, we wouldn't have to rely on all, all these dictators. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be. We wouldn't have to be going to wars to secure access to oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be a nice world, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Stephanie, uh, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Really, really interesting Yeah, chat. you too. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Um, is there like any of your work that you want to point people towards before we finish? We just put out this um, kind of um, succinct one pager. So our website is www.costs with an S, costsofwar.org. Um, and we put a, a one pager together that shows some kind of key statistics of Afghanistan before and after 20 years of US-led war. Um, and it's a really revealing glimpse, I think, into uh, what the war really did in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, I have some I have some stats from that, actually, that I had pulled up. Um, before the war, 
9% of children under 5 were malnourished. Now it's 50%. For the war, 62% of people were facing food insecurity. Now it's 92%. And before yeah. the war, 80% of people were living in poverty. And now it's 97%. That's right. 97% of Afghans living in poverty. <laughs> That's what we fought for. <laughs> That's what people, yeah, I know, fought for. Um, uh, yeah. The world we live in. Anyway. Um, yeah. I will put the link for that and um, some of the other stuff I pulled up and we, and we talked about in the description Great. below for people. Um, so yeah, Great. thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for your attention to all this. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the video. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a comment for us in the comments below. Let me know what you thought and if you'd like to see more of this from the show. Thank you. And we'll see you again next time.